chapter 5, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at where confidence can be found in a chaotic world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, it says this, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our, our heavenly dwellings, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For, while, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, thanks for this morning. Lord, thanks for the chance to gather at the beginning of the week and to worship you and encourage ourselves together in your word. Lord, just thanks for your grace on us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just guide us tonight, this morning, that you would teach us and encourage us with your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the situations going around in our country, in Minneapolis and Indianapolis and Chicago. God, I pray you just give wisdom. I pray that you'd be with the churches and the Christians in those areas. You should raise them up to be great lights. I pray that you give comfort and peace. And Lord, I pray that you give wisdom to our leaders. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Where is confidence to be found in a chaotic world? Uh, Authorities arrived at a very chaotic scene, appeared on my news links a number of times this week. In Minneapolis, in Indianapolis, in Chicago, there just seems like this chaos and chaotic events going on. It's, it's nothing new. These are just the ones that we know about. This, this is the way it's always been. We just hear about them more and more. Malcolm Muggridge, who was a leader, writer in the 70s and 80s, he wrote about his time in, in the, the Western culture, in the Western world, uh, in an article in the Los Angeles Times in the early 80s, and he said this about chaotic times and, and the Western civilization. He said, the final conclusion would seem to be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, Ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, 
creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling, and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer, until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and dragged himself into stupefaction, he keeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. That was in the early 80s, how people talked about our culture. And all of that moves to what is the ultimate issue and what's the ultimate fear of human existence which is death. We somehow, internally or culturally, have deluded ourselves into believing that death, even though we know it happens, is going to happen to somebody else. Uh, Even though we know it's real, it's not really going to happen to us. We hear about it all the time, but we don't think it's really going to happen to us. We we, we know it's going to happen, but we don't really believe it's going to happen, which has always been the way it's been. In the 1600s, someone wrote, undertaking all th- we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth, which is what we have tried to do, which is why people in their retirement age, they don't want to believe they're going to die. They move down to Florida, to the villages, and then they spend the last part of their life dressing up in cheerleading outfits or playing pickleball or doing all the things that they did in high school to try to continue to live life as if it's never going to stop. Or it's why young people live, grow up, and they live decades thinking that these decades are just always going to be here. I can just do what I want, and these are free decades, and I can spend my 20s just kind of doing whatever it is because it doesn't really matter. i got lots of time. We delude ourselves in this even though we know it's not true. And the problem is, in all of us, the clock is still ticking. It's still ticking, and we know it deep down. The clock is ticking, and what it does, it just puts pressure. People are in great pursuit of peace, but the clock is always ticking, so it's just putting pressure and more pressure and more pressure on people. And the reality is, even though for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, all of that doesn't mean that there's an automatic activation switch to give confidence to us in a chaotic world. Tim Keller, who's a well-known pastor in Manhattan, retired a few years ago, last May was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at 69. And he wrote an article in The Atlantic, in the Atlantic a few weeks ago about death. And he said this, when he found out about his pancreatic cancer, he's preached the gospel, he loves Jesus, he's pursued Jesus for years, and when he got the diagnosis, his second actual cancer diagnosis in his lifetime, he he said, faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening, even if you have it. It just doesn't click in, which is why there's many people who I've dealt with when they've had death experiences, they will often say, even Christians who who have followed Christ for a long time, some of the most often heretical things because it just shakes you so much. 
And everything that you say you believe comes to a moment with these things. And we would think that, well, I'm a follower of God. It's just going to click in. I'll have peace and comfort. It's not the way it works. There is not an automatic switch that kicks it in. It must be activated. It must be activated by information and activation. It's headwork, things that we have to know, and it is heart work, how we respond to the things that we have to know. And there was no one better, no one better to help us with that than the Apostle Paul. He was a guy who had been through some stuff. He had his world rocked in unbelievably chaotic ways on a regular basis, but he was never afraid to deal with difficult things, and he was never afraid to deal with death. If you look through anything that the Apostle Paul wrote in the Gospels, as God the Holy Spirit led him, he, he talks about death all over the place. Death is all over there, and he understood it because 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about all the things that he had gone through. A guy who'd been through some stuff, you say, well, he, he was, it says in 2 Corinthians that he was countlessly times beaten, often near death. Five times. He was lashed up to 39 times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Once he was shipwrecked. This is one man in his lifetime, stoned, lashed five times, three times, shipwrecked. He was, an unders- he was a guy who had been through some stuff and he was still attacked for all these things as he tried to live out what God had called him to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 1 through 10 is his explanation about how he could have confidence in an unbelievable, chaotic world from a guy who's lived and was living in a very chaotic world. And he gives some head information and then he gives some heart information. He starts out with some categories of facts. He says, For we know. He says in verse one. And then in verse 6, he says, we know. So these are things that we know. He gives head information, and then he gives heart information. So he starts out in, first, in first, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, with some just categories of fact. With all that he's going through, all the stuff that he's dealt, dealt with, all the chaos in his life, and he's explaining, hey, th- this is how, as a follower of Christ, you can have confidence in your chaotic world from somebody whose life is just constantly filled with chaos. And he gives some, some facts, some categories of facts for our heads, information we need. And he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. The first category of fact that he gives, he, says, he just said, Death is a terrible reality. If our earthly home is destroyed, death is an enemy. We, we, we try to make death, even as Christians, sometimes feel like it's just, it's, it's not such a bad thing. It's just, a, it's a home, it, it's, it's a joyful service at a funeral. We don't, I've had people tell me, we don't want a gloomy, Paul. Uh, make, make it happy. 
Death is an enemy. There's not anything happy about death. I, I know what they mean, but we got to be very careful that we see death the way God sees death. Death is a terrible thing. Paul destru- described it as if our earthly home, which he's talking about his body, is destroyed. Because it's not natural. Death is not the way it was designed to be. Genesis 1 is very clear. That's not how God intended us to be. He didn't intend for us to die, but death is real. It's a terrible reality. It's the separation of our bodies from our souls. I was reading an article this week from an artist who says that she's, just a, she's, she's a body experiencing experiences. We are not just body experiencing experiences. The Bible says we are body and soul. God takes, took some dust, he designed it, he laid it out there, a body, and then he breathed into it the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And when death happens, it's the separation of your soul from your body, which is not natural. But the reason is because of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin's what destroys us. And death, in Romans 6.23, says, For the wages or the payment of sin is death, but the the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we're all sinners... Because sin has brought in death and it has spread to all of us, if Jesus doesn't come back while we're still on earth, all of us are going to face death, 100% of us. It's the payment of sin. And Paul says, if this earthly home is destroyed, it's a terrible reality, we need help outside of ourselves. We can't be rescued. We need a Savior outside of ourselves for this to be true. But he says, for we know that if our Earthly home is destroyed. Death is a terrible reality. It's the, it's the temporary separating of your body from your soul. And then he says, not only is death a terrible reality, days in this body are temporary. Since we, we know that if this tent, that, that's how he describes his body. It's, it's, it's just this, this tent. Some of you like to camp. I'm not a big fan of camping at all, particularly tent camping. I'm kind of with Jim Gaffigan when he says, you know, my parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they loved me. You know, I I totally agree with that. That's my philosophy. Some of you like to tent camp in RVs. I get that. Uh, But I am definitely, I'm a cabin uh, or a nice hotel uh, kind of guy. Because tents, they are fragile. They're, They're flimsy. That's not what our natural, that's not the way we, 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 don't, we don't dream of going to live in a tent. It, gets, it starts to sag, it, it, it starts to smell, it's not the way it was when it's done. We, we went to Chicago in a tent city every time we go in there, and, and they have all these, these tents. Nobody drives past 290 and looks over at tent city and says, man, I can't wait to move in over there. I would much rather live in a tent than in my, this building that I have. But that's how God has described our bodies. They are, they are, they're temporary. They're fragile. They're like tents, and we know this. They're fading away. 
I caught a glimpse of myself in my phone by accident on clicking a text and I hit FaceTime and my face came on there thing. And my six chins I realized that we are fading and sagging. We know this. Days in our bodies are temporary, Paul says. They're, they're, they're fading. They're, it's because it's flimsy. They're fragile. And then he says there's a direction, though, to all of history. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And he calls it a building from God. And at the bottom he says we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All the events of your life, all the situations, all the experiences, they are not just random events happening. All of history is not third rock from the sun just floating around out there. The the Bible says that all of history is heading in a direction where every person will stand before God, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and God will judge the world. And there's a heavenly, there's a building that we are longing for as believers. It's very easy to start to believe when you see all these chaotic events happening, all these different distractions, like, well, does any of this make sense? It just seems so random. History is not random, ultimately. It is heading in a direction, which is why we groan for this, it says. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And this means more than just ugh kind of groans, which we, we do. And, and you know those sounds. I don't, of course, yet. But you guys might know those sounds. We groan. I had somebody a couple years ago have lunch with me, and they hadn't seen me in a while, and they said, hey, Paul, you know, hey, what happened to that good, in-shape youth pastor I used to know? I'm like, well, life happens. Uh, You groan. We know this, but that's not what he's saying here. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly... There is a groan of frustration, but what Paul's talking about this, this this is a groan of anticipation. This is what he's looking forward to. He says, for for in this temporary body, we groan in anticipation. It's like a little kid right before Christmas who's got great parents, who he knows they've got presents under the tree for him. Not only does he know it, he heard his parents wrapping them up the night before. He's even seen some of them, and he's just so excited because he knows when he wakes up, he can't wait to get to the next morning in anticipation. He doesn't know exactly what it's going to be like. He's not even sure, it's, but he knows it's going to be good. This is how Paul longed for heaven. It was this, for we groan with this anticipation that all of life is, history is heading in a direction. This we need to know so that we don't pack the court of our lives so that we're unable to make clear, unbiased decisions because we think we have all the time in the world and that it doesn't matter what we do. It does matter because history is moving in this direction. Our bodies, these tents, are going to be folded up and there's a new building coming and there's a direction that we're heading and we can long for it. And people will stop to pause and think, I don't know what it's going to be like. It's, it's frightening to think be, be, that I'm going to exist for 10,000 years from now. But it says it's like home. You're going to get there, and you're going to be like, yeah, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be like. It, it's home. It's what I've always longed for. It's not weird. It's home. It's so comfortable. 
That's the direction that we're heading in. He says, death's terrible. Our days and our body are temporary. There's a direction to all of history. And fourthly, he says, there's a deposit given to believers of this reality. Verse 5 says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's, there's a deposit in you. There's, there's a guarantee that this reality is for you if you're a follower of Christ. That, that it's in you. That it's been deposited to you. Romans 5.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. It was a deposit. It's a guarantee, which is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, who was killed at 39 years old, at the, almost the end of World War II, when he went to the gallows, right before he died, he said this. He said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Because he had the Holy Spirit. He knew that there was this deposit. It was a guarantee that what he had to look forward to, this, that there was a, there was a permanent building his body that was prepared for him by God for this very thing. These are things we have to know. And Paul's given this information. This is why we can be, have confidence as Christians in chaotic situations. We don't deny that death is terrible. We believe death is terrible because we know this isn't what God designed us for. But our sin has caused death to flow in us. It is the last and the final enemy that will be destroyed. But we believe Jesus Christ has come, risen from the dead. And these bodies that we're living in now are temporary. He's prepared for us a better one. There's a direction to all of our history. And we have the Holy Spirit. There's a deposit for us that's guaranteed for us. That helps us. That's good information. But you have to activate that information to have confidence. That's how you respond to it. Believing something is sweet is one thing. But taking the taste of it and seeing that it's sweet is another thing. Believing that a stool can hold you is one thing. Putting all your weight on it and trusting it is something else. And so Paul says, based on all these things, all this head stuff, all this stuff we know, we know, we know, we know, he says. In verse 6, so, because of all the things we know, so, this is how it applies to us. This is how we can have confidence in a chaotic situation. He says, so, we are always of good courage. And he gives some categories of focus. This is how Paul focused his life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Knowing all these things, he says, this is how I focus my life. And, we, and the focus is we don't live in misery. Even though there's chaos all around us, even though there's chaotic things we don't understand, even though there's protest in the street, even though things are changing, people are getting killed, there's death everywhere. It doesn't look like anybody's in control. Paul says we, we don't live that way. We live in good courage. We don't live in misery. We live in confidence. 
because we know Jesus Christ. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. We don't live in misery. How did Paul not live in misery? Because he planted his life on the promises of God. So we know, because we know all these things, because God's promised us this permanent dwelling for eternity, because he's already promised that for us, this is what we have, it's deposited in me, I live with great courage, because this body that frustrates me, that aches, that I don't understand everything that's going on in life, is not the way it's always going to be, so I live with courage. By planting his life in the promises of God, and then by pressing into the promises of God, and then just patiently waiting on the promises of God. First Thessalonians 5.9 says, a promise. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Tragedy strikes this week or tragedy stroke struck a year ago and you're trying to figure it all out or six months or 10 years from now when tragedy strikes. The response is for us as believers, we can say, no, God's not destined me for wrath. So whatever this is doing, whatever's happening to me in my physical body right now, it hurts. I may not understand it, but it's not because God's against me. It's not because of wrath, because of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul would teach himself. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul lived in chaos, but he says he, he, told, he felt the pain. But he lived in a way that was always in good courage because he kept going back to these promises. He knew what was, he was longing for, and he longed for it. He, he couldn't wait. To, he was looking for heaven. He wanted to go. Not because he want, didn't want to do what he was supposed to do here, but because he, he wanted to be with God. He wanted to be with Christ, and he desired it. Have you so packed your life with stuff right now that if, that if tragedy happened, you'd be disappointed that you ended up in heaven? That you missed out on your vacation that you've been planning? The, the, the car that you were hoping to buy, the house you wanted to renovate, and be like, oh, what a ripoff. We live that way. Paul didn't live that way. He lived in such a way with all the things he wanted. He desired heaven above everything else. So we don't live in misery, and we don't live without mystery. He says we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul got beat by rods. He didn't always know what God's plan was. He even failed in trying to figure it out sometimes, as we saw a few weeks ago. So we don't deny reality. We don't look at the world and say, ah, it's a piece of cake to understand. Here's all just connect the dots, you idiots. Now we look at the world and say, I don't know where that dot's going. But I live by faith, not by sight. I believe what Jesus 
has says, and faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We don't live in misery. We don't live without mystery, though. Our worlds get rocked. Scars and struggles on the way. But by faith, we see Christ in all of them. He says we don't live without mystery, and then we aim our lives to please God. So it says yes for good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But then he says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please God. That's our aim. Matthew 6, 19-20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves. Listen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor nor thief breaks in and steals. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Paul's treasure was never on this earth. It was not on what he could gain. It wasn't on what he was doing. It wasn't even his success in ministry. Paul's treasure was always laying up treasures in heaven for the glory of God. That was the direction of his life. That was his aim. This is the heart work. What's the direction of your life? What's the aim of your life? No matter how little time you have left or how long you have time left. If you've got five years left or if you've got 65 years left, Paul's life was based off, hey, because we know that we have this permanent dwelling, our aim for our life is to please God. And then he says, not only that, the other category of focus he was, is we are aware, we're very aware, Paul said, our actions matter to a holy God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he's done in his body, whether good or evil. You say, well, I didn't think it mattered what I did to be in Christ. And Paul's right. He, did, he says, we don't want to be unclothed, and he knew he never would be unclothed. To be unclothed was to be shamed. This is what the problem in Genesis was. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they recognized that they were naked and unclothed and they were ashamed and they needed someone outside of them to help them. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus did. He covers us in our shame. If you're in Christ, you will never be uncovered. When you die, you will not die like those who are without Christ. We will not feel the weight of death that those who are outside of Christ feel. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In a moment, we die, but we don't die because we have life eternal in us. But in the great sovereignty of God that he calls you, he says there's great responsibility as well. Faith that is real will act and will be what God wants us to be. We're aware that our actions matter to God. It matters to God. You're going to stand and give account for your motives, what you've done in your body, whether good or evil. You're going to stand before God. Will be, if you're in Christ, to be covered in Christ, but it matters. 
Someone said the teaching about the judgment seat before which all believers must come reminds us that we have been saved, not for a life of aimlessness or indifference, but to live as to the Lord. This is the heart stuff. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just going to do what I want to do because I know at the end it's going to be good. The Bible says you'll be very disappointed. That's not how a Christian would live. A Christian trusts Christ for everything and he lives his life for Christ in everything. And we're going to stand before God. And it matters. And in a culture like ours in the West, in an area like ours where it's very easy to fill up our lives with everything so that heaven doesn't sound interesting because we are so gutted and glutted with everything else, Paul would say it matters. The heart work is what's the direction of your life. If you believe, you will obey and desire to obey. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus himself talking to the church of Laodicea, he says, I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in in white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What's the direction of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, Do you long for heaven? If you're a follower of Christ, is the aim of your life to please God? In Christ, the wrath of God is never going to be on us. But what we do matters. And Jesus at the end, this is how he closed Revelations 3. He says, behold, to believers, to the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is gentle and lowly. And as he says, just follow me, yeah, I, I, want you to, I want you to aim your life towards me. I don't want you to fill it with everything that leaves you in chaos, but I want you to be in confidence. And he just says, I'm waiting for you. You say, well, I've, I've really pushed God out of my life for the last six months. Jesus is just not pounding on the door of your heart. He's just standing there, gently knocking. Just, he's just waiting for you. Open it up. As soon as you open it up, he wants to come in. He wants to get you back in that relationship with him because this is how we have confidence through very chaotic situations. What's a Christian's confidence then in the chaotic world? It's Jesus Christ. 
for whom all the promises of God are yes in him. Samuel Rutherford, an old pastor in the 1700s, loved Jesus well. And he wrote about that and he said of this, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is there in you a desire for heaven? A desire to be out of this body and be with Jesus, to be with God. And you're aiming your life in that direction, and there's chaos and confusion all around. But you say, I'm going to focus my life on Jesus Christ. I don't understand everything, but I know who is the answer.